Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how marvelous, how wonderful your love is for us. Because for us, you died. You lived a perfect life of obedience on our behalf for us that we might not perish but have everlasting life. And we celebrate that today, Lord. We celebrate you. We thank you for your goodness towards us, your faithfulness towards us, for your faithfulness in our lives, working in every situation behind the scenes and in the details even, just bringing us into a place where we can uh, look back and say God was there. And Lord, we know that you're here today. We invite your presence in a special way. We thank you for what you're doing in Asbury, and we thank you for what you're doing all over the world in places that we haven't heard of. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives here, and we ask for just a a sense of your presence increasing in our lives and uh, that we would just give glory to you and praise to you. Lord, have your way with us. Have your way with this church. Bring those you want to be here and bring us to those you want to hear because you've given us a mandate and a, and a glorious message. It's in Christ's name that we go and we pray and we thank you for this time and ask the blessing on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today, I'm going to take an intermission on the messages to the seven churches. We're going to take an intermission. And uh, we're going to talk about the goodness of God. And it really has a place, I think, in this series on Revelation when I, when I start to think about it. Because as we're looking at the messages to the seven churches... And the book of Revelation in general, it is a book that shows us the end game. The end game. There's judgment coming. There is a judgment and a restoration coming. A restoration of this world to where it should should properly be. But there's a lot of, here's what's going to happen to the wicked. You don't want to be a part of that. And that's the book of Revelation. Here's what's going to happen to the wicked. You don't want to be a part of that. And so then there are... Uh, messages that we need to get our place in line because we see that end coming. It's not just the judgment on the wicked, but it's the the glories and the eternal life for the saints. So we see the end game. So that's something that should encourage us and push us along in our Christian walk, that end game view. But today we're going to look at something that helps us along the way as well as having an end game view we have a present here and now reality in the goodness of God that can really give us an advantage in our Christian walk. It's not just a a doctrine that we believe God is good and we, we declare it all the time, but how do we consider the goodness of God in that it empowers us to live with that end game in view, that we're on a track, we're on a journey to glory, and avoiding the, the judgment of the wicked. So we're going to talk about the goodness of God today, and I want to start by asking you how you feel if someone says, I have some good news and some bad news. What do you, okay, I want, to, I want to find out who's who. Uh, when, what do you say when you hear, I have some good news and bad news? Do you say, tell me the bad news first or tell me the good news first? Who, who wants the good news first? One, two, three... <laughs> The bad news, bad news. For, most people want the bad news first. I guess it's so you can feel better after you hear the bad news. And, but it's interesting that when we talk about good news and bad news, there's 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 a simultaneous 
emotion that comes up in us. There's a there's there's both the hope and the uh, the uh, something good's going to happen, and there's also the the apprehension. So there's there's an anticipation. What what's the good going to be? What you know? At the same time, there's this apprehension. What is the bad going to be? And we all, of course, want good. Good is really the driving motivator in our lives, right? There's so much that drives us, and it's all a pursuit of good. But the problem is there's always good news and bad news. So we always, though we're pursuing good, we always have to deal with the bad. And, of course, the gospel has both good news and bad news. But the bad news is, in the gospel, that there is a judgment coming, that we cannot make it on our own, that our works aren't good enough and that if we were left to ourselves, we would have no hope. But the good news is Jesus came and he took care of everything for us, died for us, purchased us so that we would have hope, that even though we fail, or we mess up, we're never measuring up, Jesus measured up for us and makes the way for us in which we can not just be accepted by God, but experience his love and his goodness. And that's, that's the wonderful message of the gospel. But we are on a pursuit of good, and there's always bad news involved. And sometimes the problem is people are pursuing good that's not really good. I mean, everybody, even the worst hardened criminals, they think they're pursuing good to them, but it's not good. It's ultimately not good. And when we pursue things that are not good, it destroys us. And also, when we're pursuing good, good things in a wrong way, that's, that brings bad outcomes too, right? So we are trying to find out where the good is. Ultimately, life is a pursuit for good, but we continually have to deal with the bad. And so in Revelation, we've been looking at the messages, and uh, there's lots of, I've got some good news and bad news for you. And Jesus shares first what you're doing good, and then he shares here's what needs to be fixed. But he doesn't stop with just good news, bad news. He has good news, bad news, and then good news. He says, here's what you're doing good. The bad news is you're doing this, and the word that it usually accompanies the bad news is repent. Repent. And what does repent mean but to change your course, change your mindset, change your direction. That's all it is. Well, I can't repent. Some people think it's so hard to repent. It means getting their act together. It doesn't mean getting your act together. It means getting in line so that you can get your act together. You're turning in the right direction. You're making a course correction. But he doesn't just stop with the bad news, repent. He says, here's the good news to those who overcome. Here's what's going to come for you. But how do you overcome? How do you overcome? And why is it so hard to change? And often... Here's the answer is because we are not honing in or focusing on the goodness of God. Romans 2.4 is the verse that we're addressing here. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So in this verse, you have both a warning and the secret sauce for the Christian life. It's both in this verse. First, there's a warning. In fact, this, this was being addressed to those who were sticking to their traditions, trusting in the, their traditions, their judgment, their law, 
And Paul was saying, no, you know, you're as guilty as those you are judging. In the book of Romans, he's going through that the first couple of chapters. And he says, you're, you're not in the right place. Do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You need to repent. It's not your traditions. It's not your law. It's not your heritage as the Jews. All of these things may or may not be useful, but that's not what's going to happen. You need repentance. And do you not know it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? So that's the warning. And to anybody outside of Christ, that would be the same thing. Why are you ignoring the Savior? He died for you. He wants the best for you. He wants you to receive eternal life. You don't have to fear death. And you don't have to fear this life now because he offers to walk in it with you. That's the good. Why do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So, But for the Christian who already has turned to God and believes in Jesus, loves the Lord, it, do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We still have more. We still need strength sometimes. Sometimes we beat ourselves up because we're not living the way we feel like we should, and we find it so difficult to repent. But here, the secret sauce is that you know, knowing the goodness of God can lead you to that repentance. And that word for lead in the Greek means to drive you or to bring you or to carry you. In other words, if we are focusing on that goodness of God, if we're really ultimately pursuing good and we've got it right, what is good, and we are considering his goodness when we really taste and see that the Lord is good, that leads us, carries us, drives us into repentance. In our case, meaning that we are motivated and we have some assistance in walking the walk of the Christian life. Um, life is a pursuit of good, like I said, and God, God is who we should be pursuing. He is the ultimate good. Now, it's interesting, the word good is one letter off from the word God. The good God. Even I looked up the etymology of good, and it comes from a, the English etymology comes from an ancient spelling of good that was actually just G-O-D with a long O. I don't understand how that works, but I just think it's interesting. There's one letter off between good and God. Um, biblically, we can make a case that God is the ultimate and only good. And in Luke 18, 19, uh, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So, you know, what was he saying there? Was he, was he you know, saying, oh, don't call me good, it's only God is good. I don't think that's what he was saying here. I think what he wanted to do was to get someone to examine their, their thinking, what they were pursuing, what their tradition said, their tradition said to address the rabbis as good teacher. Oh, good teacher. We, we carelessly throw around the good, good word, thinking this is good, this is good, this is good. And he's saying here, I want you to consider what is really good. You're calling me good teacher, but really what is good and only good is God. So I believe that Jesus was making a statement, one, trying to get people to look at what are we really calling good? But two, saying that he is, in fact, you know, the one that's being addressed, he is acknowledging Jesus to be God, in a sense. And so, um, when we say 
that people are pursuing good, we see that their lives can get screwed up when it's not good, good. What is ultimately good, and that is God. And ultimately, that expression of good comes and is clarified in Jesus. He is the ultimate good, and it is good to know what is good. That's the goodness of God. But now the goodness of God is not enough to know. That's not what leads to repentance. It's what leads to repentance is is his goodness towards us. The goodness of God is extended to you and to me. And it's linked to those words, do you not despise the riches of his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to, to repentance. When it talks about forbearance, forbearance means holding back. And long-suffering means patience. And so here is uh, where the secret sauce comes into play, if I could say it that way. God's goodness towards us means that it is easy to be in relationship with him. In fact, the same word for goodness in Romans 2.4 is the word used in Matthew 11.30 where Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Easy. So goodness in this Romans 2.4 passage implies easy. It implies gentleness. It implies kindness as well as moral excellence and, and glory, everything that goes with good, beneficial, and helpful. All You can make a lot of words describe what good means, but the word, the particular word for good in this passage is gentle, kind, easy. And how many of you have a relationship with a gentle, kind, and easy God? Or do you have a relationship with a God who's breathing down your necks all the time, telling you what you're doing wrong, who's a killjoy, doesn't want you to have any fun, and doesn't want you to smile or anything because you've messed up, you're not worthy, and you're low, and you know, on and on. And I used to be this way. I'll, I'll always sing this song, and you've heard me testify before, but I used to be of the Puritan sort, and I love the Puritans. I can read the Puritans and feel like I'm wafting up into heaven as they describe God and his glory, and I'm starting to float when I'm reading. I'm thinking, oh, hallelujah, let's praise the Lord and worship him. It's so worshipful and pious. But at the same time, when I start to get this haunting feeling that I'm not worthy and that I haven't deserved to be in that place and that I can't measure up, and as much as I try, I mess up all the time, and that God must just be looking at me and going, tisk, 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 what a mess, but okay. You know, I'll, I'll take you anyway. I, Jesus died for you, and, and you can go to heaven. But that doesn't help my relations. I mean, it helps me in a degree. But when I started to understand that God's not angry with me, that he's easy to live with, that he's kind, he's kind to me. I mean, let's face it. We say God loves you, right? But how many of you believe that God likes you? Why would he like me? I don't even like myself. Well, he likes you because he is God and he's able to go beyond what we can go. And because of the blood of Jesus and because he sees you as perfect in Jesus and that Jesus made a way in a covenant that would bring us into reconciliation with him, not just to be right, but to be loved and favored and accepted. Accepted in the beloved. That word in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, I believe, I think it's, Chapter 1, verse 16. 
accepted in the beloved. That's the sweet 16. I remember the verse number 16. Sweet 16, accepted in the beloved. It means highly favored. So, you know, your relationship with God can be, oh, I'm always messing up and he's got such high standards. What can I do? And you can still go that way and you can still have some semblance of relationship. But what if you start to, by faith, believe that I'm highly favored. He has my picture on his mantle. I'm one of his favorite children. I can't say that. Why not? It's, it's the, that's the kindness, the goodness of God towards us, matched with forbearance and patience with us. And there's more that we're going to talk about. But when I start to feel that way, suddenly I have more of a joy in my step. Suddenly I find myself uh, free from the burden of feeling like I have to measure up, and I start to be free to actually walk in his ways and it's not as difficult as it was before because it's now in relationship with a God who cares about me and who is in relationship with me and not just watching over my shoulder and trying to correct me at every wrong move. Will he correct me? Yes, but that's not the gist of it. The gist of it is he wants to love me, and he wants me to love him. He wants me to be free to just rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why does it say everywhere? that your joy may be full. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's because God is good. He's not a stern taskmaster. And sometimes we just get hung up on the Old Testament images, but even those images of him enacting fierce judgment, even his judgment proceeds from goodness. But we are in a place where all that judgment has been placed on Christ. So we don't have to fear that, that he's always breathing down our necks, but he is... He's wanting us to be free. In whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So um, you can be free this morning, knowing his goodness. But now you say, well, I'm already free. Well, here's the beauty of, of the goodness of God. You can be freed more fully. It talks about... Uh, the riches, we have riches in him. Do you despise the riches of his forbearance and patience, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? There are riches. And not knowing, not knowing, the Greek there is talking about not considering or ignoring. So even a Christian who is free can be freed more fully to experience the more full understanding of love and the revelation of God in Christ and to be growing in all the good that he has for us if we would just make a, a, a conscious decision to consider and focus, hone in, not ignore his goodness. And that is what will get us into a, a greater fullness in our walk with him. And his goodness is his glory. And it, you know, there's a passage in the scripture that talks about us going from glory to glory. You could say we're going from his goodness to goodness. If you could put a commentary on everything that's going on, not everything is good, but God is good in everything, and he's leading us to glory to glory. Well, glory is his goodness. That's what it says in Exodus 33, verse 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. This is a great prayer. If you're feeling weak, if you're feeling tired, you're wondering how much longer it'll take, oh Lord. It's always good to go back, get quiet, close the door, say, Lord, show me your glory and wait on him and start to think on 
his glorious works, what he's done in Scripture, what he's done in your life in the past. But show me your glory and be patient and let the Holy Spirit start to reveal his glory to you. And that motivates us to go. That's a form of considering his goodness, knowing his goodness. And that leads, drives, brings, carries you into a repentance. Or in our case, we're trying to say walking more faithfully and committed to him and effectively walking with him. So show me your glory. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Moses said, show me your glory. He said, I'll show you my goodness. So he's equating the glory with the goodness. And the glory of God, we can't fathom how glorious the glory of God is. If we, if we were to be faced with the glory without any, any uh, kind of help or, you know, he had to go make this glory pass, pass before Moses. He couldn't just reveal it to Moses. I don't think Moses could have handled it. And we couldn't handle it if we were faced, confronted with the glory of God, except for the fact that it is matched and equated with graciousness and compassion. You see, glory would overwhelm us. And in the book of Revelation, we see John, when he gets a vision of Jesus, he falls down before Jesus as dead. I can't, it's too much. But Jesus doesn't keep him down. He picks him up and says, don't be afraid, fear not. There is graciousness, there is compassion, and because there's that goodness with God, we can stand in the glory. And in fact, we can go from glory to glory, and he's promised to bring us into that glory, to rule and reign with him in glory. And it's all because his perfect glory his, is tied to the goodness, and his goodness is tied to forbearance and patience and gentleness and graciousness and compassion and everything. What is good? It's the perfect good. No taint of any problem with it whatsoever. And, you know, anything good on this earth that we have, there's always something that's tainting it a little bit. Oh, it's brand new, it's perfect, but there's always the taint of, well, it's not going to be brand new and perfect forever. God's always going to be brand new and perfect forever. Or this is just fine, it's a, oh, but it's got a little scratch there. Well, don't worry, there's no scratch or blemish or blotch with, with the Lord. I mean, we, we just hit foretaste of what's good. Anything that's good that we experience here is a foretaste of, a smidgen of what we're going to experience when we are engulfed in that goodness in the eternal glory. And we can only taste of it now. And when we consider that, it gives me encouragement to want to advance and go further and to pursue and not to be taken off track by the counterfeits and the things in this world that are saying, oh, this is good. Why don't you come after this? Oh, this, you know, don't don't worry about that. That's off. Let's put that off. Let's go for this. You know, it's all counterfeit. It's all minimal. It's all falls short of the glory of God. We want to wake up and say, I'm going for what's where the gold is, right? I'm going for where the gold is. Now, back to God is easy with you. There's, there's that compassion and graciousness, kindness. I said, do you believe that God likes you? Do you believe he's being kind to you? How can he, you know, a lot of people, and myself, my old my testimony was I thought he was always angry with me. And then I heard some great teaching, and it could be summed up in what Andrew Womack says. God's not angry with you. He's not even in a bad mood. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, can you really, 
Can you really think that? It's hard to think that. But look at what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 54. And in, I think every Christian should have this chapter, Isaiah 54, bookmarked. And whenever you need encouragement, go back to it and read it. It's some of the most precious scriptures. It says, For a mere moment, verse 7 through 11, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. He's talking to Israel, and he's, he's talking about the covenant, what's coming in his covenant of peace. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you. Everlasting kindness. Everlasting kindness. How long does everlasting last? Ever, everlasting. Is it, it, does it ever get interrupted, stopped? He, but he's, he's talking. This is where his heart is being revealed through this scripture. With everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. See, you're going to need mercy. I mean, as much as we can talk about this, as, as great as we want to be as the, the holy man or woman of God, we're, we're always going to need that mercy on us because we always uh, fall short in this stage of the, of the scheme of redemption anyway. But he will have mercy on us, says the Lord your Redeemer. Then the next verse, verse 9 says, For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. I always thought God was angry with me every time I messed up. He loved me, but he was an angry parent. But here, his heart is saying to us, I will not be angry with you, even as I swore there'd be no more flood to cover the earth. I'm not going to be angry with you, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Can we all just let his kindness rest on us for a minute, just thinking that God is kind and it's not going to depart, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed. Complete peace with God, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Now that he's speaking this, oh, you afflicted one tossed with tempest and not comforted, he's saying, be comforted. I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. In other words, you're a building, you're a work, you're a piece of art that God is working on and it's in kindness he's building you up and you don't do yourself any favor when you beat yourself up god is building you up but you're beating yourself up why don't you align with god and build yourself up because he's building you up in kindness and if i think on the kindness of god it makes me love him more it makes me want to worship him more it makes me want to give thanks more so much more than if I think I'm always under the microscope and every nitpicky thing, I can still thank him, but it's more of a fearful, thank you, thank you, you know, I've got to get this thanks out to you or else I'm going to be even worse. No, it's so much better to believe that he, he's kind and he's loving me. So when you go to prayer, when you go to prayer, do you believe that you're going to a kind and merciful God or or do you, are you trying to do some uh, mea culpas, whatever they just call that? In the, <laughs> you know, I gotta first weep and I gotta, first weep and mourn and confess and all this, and you know, there's a place for that. But when you go to prayer, do you believe you're going to a God who's looking favorably on you? When you mess up, what what is your view of God? Do you believe He's looking favorably on you? 
again, his goodness is linked with forbearance and long-suffering. And, and uh, that word for long-suffering, patience, I've said before that we often want things instantly, but God is not cooking with a microwave-type cooker. He, he cooks more with a crock-pot cooker, so it's longer sometimes, and we have to learn to be patient. But this is actually to our advantage because when we go to the Lord, He's got that crock-pot patience with us. He's not expecting instant change. He wants instant heart. He wants your heart to be like, I want what you want, Lord. But if you don't measure up, God is patient. He has forbearance. He has patience, and it's coupled with kindness. He has that goodness towards you. And not only is it towards you, it's goodness for you. I mean, you've got to take it even further. This is gospel faith I'm talking about. It takes faith to believe that God is for you and not against you. But that's exactly what Romans 8, 31, 32 says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So do you believe that God is for you and that he's rooting for you and that he's giving you all things? What can separate us from the love of God, Paul goes on to say. And the question I say again is, do you believe this about you, you and him? Is he for you? Is he on your side? We, I'd like to say, are you on his side? But you have to first consider that he loves you. Then you, because he loved us, he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. If I consider that he's on my side, I'm considering that goodness. And it leads me, drives me, brings me into wanting to be more on his side. That's the goodness of God. And he's given us everything, the riches of his glorious grace, and everything flows in your life from the goodness of God. His wisdom for your life is flowing from his goodness. His thoughts towards you flowing from his goodness. So where, why aren't these things working? What's wrong? How did I get in this situation? You know, that could be for a number of reasons, but you can trust that when you look to God, that wisdom that he's going to see you through, and it may be painful, may not be painful, but whatever it is, his wisdom towards you is an overflow of his goodness into your life. He has not just saved us, he has wanted to show kindness to us, kindness that he'll never remove, and that involves his wisdom ordering your life as you submit to him. And you yourself, his creation, all his creation flows from his good, and you are a product of his good. No one should ever think of themselves as worthless and yuck. We should think of ourselves as, I came from the Lord. Well, yes, I know I came from my parents, but ultimately from the foundation of the world, I was in the Lord's scheme, in the Lord's foreknowledge, the Lord's plan, and it was all from goodness. I'm a product of his goodness. And I'm not saying that to build myself up. I'm just saying that to agree with the scriptural witness. And, of course, everything we have that is good comes from the Lord. James 1, 7, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. There again, it's almost like I will not remove my kindness and there's no variation or shadow of turning God doesn't decide that all my good is going to go towards Saint A, but not towards Saint B. 
Or why does so-and-so have it so good and I don't have it so good? You have it just as good as anybody else if you're looking to the Lord, living for the Lord, submitted to the Lord, and His infinite wisdom is giving you just what you need. And He's laying up goodness for us, a treasure for us that we can't begin to fathom, but we can encourage ourselves with. Psalm 31, 19, How great is the goodness the Lord has laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Look at the goodness that the Lord has laid up. It's coming, and we have the deposit in Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate expression, the, the ultimate perfect gift that came from above. Here's another interesting thing. Good is one letter off from God, right? In Romans 2.4 passage, goodness is the word Christos. And Jesus Christ, Christ the Messiah, the Greek word is Christos. That's one letter off from Christos. Christos, Christos. I just think that's kind of interesting. It probably, uh, you can take it for whatever it is. But the point is, is that Jesus is the ultimate expression of the Lord. He's the ultimate good. And, you know, when we look at something and we buy something or we're, we, we're going to commit to something, we say, is it any good? and we give it some kind of inspect. Okay, then we make a decision about it. Well, Jesus was the perfect gift, the perfect good. <clears throat> Is it any good? It says in 1 Peter 2:22 that he committed no sin, nor was uh, not 1 Peter 2:22. It was yeah, 1 Peter 2:22, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. There is nothing uh, in Jesus to taint any of the good. In fact, we we have the Lamb of God. You'll notice the Lamb of God there. When they offered a Lamb of God for sin offerings in the temple, the sacrifices, the Lamb had to be inspected and it had to be without spot or blemish. had to be approved of the high priest. And Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was without spot or blemish. No deceit in his mouth. No sin ever committed. And he is the one accepted of the Father, the greatest, and he himself becomes our great high and holy priest, and he accepts us because his perfect sacrifice was on our behalf. His perfect righteousness, his righteousness. There's no taint in his righteousness. There's no sin to defile it, and yet his righteousness is imputed to you and me by faith. His love towards us is perfect, his obedience to the Lord on our behalf was so perfect, and it was obedience unto death. And here is the perfect goodness of God. He obeyed not for himself. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He shed his, his drops of blood for us. I can't remember the verses, but he did all of this, not for himself, but for us. That is the goodness of God extended towards us. I can't do justice to it. I know it in my spirit. I think you know it in your spirit. Jesus is the ultimate good. I wish there were words that could lift him up and get us to worship him all the more because of his good, because I know the truth that when we consider and not ignore the goodness of God, it leads us, drives us, brings us to repentance. And when I'm down, need encouragement, I need to go there. I need to say, God is good. And I need to look back at what he's done in my life. And I need to say, where am I right now? Am I on that pursuit, that track, looking for his good? Because that's what's going to put us over. Jesus said that he came 
that we might have life and have it more abundantly, why do we settle for all that's less? And it's because we're in a fallen world, we're in our flesh, we're in the natural, and we get tempted and things look good and it's easy to go according to the flesh. But if we can consider what is ultimately good and not be taken by the deceptions, the counterfeits, and, and not be given over too much to what is acceptable even, but to have our greatest treasure in the highest good, which is God, that's going to propel us in our walk with him. So I want to close by asking, are you in this pursuit? Do you have God as your ultimate good, as the driving motivation in your life? I know you have good as the driving motivation, but are you defining your good in God's terms? Is it God? Is he your ultimate pursuit? Is your life on that track, on a good track? And if it's not, what do you need to do to get it on track? You say, well, I, I try, but I just can't. I, you know, it's too hard to repent like that. Do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Is it hard? Let's, let's make it a little easier. Here's what you do. God, you are good. I want to go to my word. What's the word say? I want to go back to my journal. What did God do? I want to go to the future. What is God promising? I want to hone in, focus on the goodness. I want my life to be on that good track. And that will make that repentance easier. That will make it easier to have relationship with the one you know is kind to you, not breathing down your neck, but wanting to root you on and bring you up and take you to the next level. And then you get excited. And then it's like, oh, I got to share, I got to witness to people. No, it's not that. It's like, oh, I can't wait to talk to this person. Or I, I can't wait to, to give a testimony here. I mean, it starts to become exciting when you are in that love relationship with the Lord. Amen. So uh, we're going to continue with Revelation but I wanted to use that as an intermission because even the judgments of God uh, can amplify his goodness towards us because we see that there is goodness and there is severity of God. But the fact that it's so severe in some of the Revelation pictures just amplifies the goodness that he has towards us in Jesus Christ, that he, he has only thoughts of peace and not of evil towards us because of what he gave us in Jesus. And that's that's worth worshiping and shouting about, I think. Amen. So we're going to close, and uh, then we'll pray and talk about the next event here.